October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. All right, welcome back to the Avenus History Podcast. This episode is entitled Prophecy and Plagiarism, Part 1. Last time we talked about the Satan Show, a 20-year period of time where Christians were terrified of demonic influence in their culture, including Seventh-day Adventists. And while there were some genuinely alarming things that were happening, this also led them to trust in people who claimed to be former devil worshippers, but who ultimately proved to either be con men or women or otherwise morally incompetent Christian leaders so if you want to go listen to that episode, go do that. It doesn't really tie in with this one, but it does give you a, a feel for, well, what the 70s were like in many Christian circles. We are going to begin this episode with George Edgar Schenkel. He was a veteran Adventist missionary, itinerant history teacher. Like He taught at a number of Adventist colleges. In 1967, he published a new textbook, but not quite a textbook, for college undergrads titled God and Man in History. In it, Schenkel confesses, quote, Although this is a book about history, it is not a history book. It is an inquiry into the interrelation of the human and the divine in the determination of history, end quote. Schenkel believed that God was the prime mover in history, and that you cannot possibly understand history without acknowledging God. As he put it, it's this interrelation of the human and the divine in the determination of history. That's what makes history. It is part human effort, part divine effort, and the outcome is, well, what happens on this planet. Schenkel was then about a decade away from death. Of course, he didn't know that. But he was undoubtedly looking to distill his lifetime of learning into a book that would outlast him in the molding of minds into the next generation. But some of the next generation weren't looking for this kind of molding. A young Adventist historian at what is now Loma Linda University reviewed Shankel's book for Spectrum, an independent Adventist journal, titled In Defense of Secular History. Ron Numbers blasted Shankel, saying, quote, Essentially, Shankel wants to abandon the training of professional historians in Christian colleges in favor of a program that would produce historically-oriented theologians, end quote. If God was the prime mover in history, then, Numbers was essentially asking, why even bother studying history? Just say, God did it, God was behind it, and go on your merry way in life. Now, Ben MacArthur, a longtime history professor at Southern Adventist University, was similarly nonplussed by Shankel's book. MacArthur offered an explanation as to why God and Man in History never became an Adventist bestseller. One of the reasons MacArthur gave was that it had the misfortune of being published at the wrong time. Well, if you couldn't tell by now, there was a changing of the guard in the late 1960s into the 1970s. The younger historians were eager to apply their training in modern historical methods and critical thinking, in their role as Avenist historians. And for those historians, Shankel's book would be the last thing many of them wanted to require their students to use. Compared to what secular historians were publishing, Shankel's book might very well be a tract. And it wasn't that numbers or others disagreed that God was working in history. It was simply that, how can you be a historian and write about, let's say, the Middle Ages, 
with God as one of the actors in the story? Like, how do you know where God actually fit in into the Middle Ages? Okay, well, Protestants are obviously going to see God in the Protestant Reformation. Catholic historians are might not see God in the Protestant Reformation, or at least not in the same way Protestants do, right? And so this became tricky because your historian's job is to collect evidence, collect accounts of what happened, and try to present it in a way to readers, to listeners, however, however the, the history is being conveyed. But how can you know exactly what God is doing? And if you start positing things with God as a character in your history, then you're going to cut off everybody who doesn't believe in God the way that you do. And so that's why Numbers wrote in defense of secular history, because secular history, that is writing history without God in it, is something that it's like the least common denominator. Everybody can do that. Regardless of what you believe, this is a language everybody speaks. You can be a Muslim, an atheist, a Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist, whatever. We can all understand an essay on causes of the American Civil War and their consequences. We can argue about it. We can add or discover new evidence and adjust those conclusions. And so Numbers and others were trying to defend history, uh, history writing as... A, a secular enterprise for the good of history, regardless of their personal religious convictions. Now, Shankel had offered three examples of how God acted in history. In fact, he, he offered more than three, but one of the things that he wrote is, quote, is it too much to believe that God overruled, for example, in the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 at a crucial moment in the religious history of England and all Europe, end quote. In case you guys are not familiar with the story of the Spanish Armada, it was a massive fleet assembled by Spain to invade England, to depose Elizabeth, to restore Catholicism to England and end Protestantism there, and it had some goals it wanted to achieve on the continent as well, but it famously failed due to attacks from English ships and due to really poor weather conditions, which killed more of the sailors than uh, combat did. So, Shankel asks... How can you look at this situation where Protestantism in England seemed to be hanging by a thread? If these hundreds of ships landed, if these thousands of troops landed, they might have end Protestant, ended Protestantism there in England for good, and history might be a very different thing. So, so he asks, one might easily conceive that God overruled there, that God was involved there. He goes on to give more examples as well. Quote, one might easily conceive that God overruled in the miracle of the Marne during World War I or in the battles of Gettysburg or Manassas in the American Civil War, end quote. To this, Ron Numbers snarkily replied, quote, some conjectures tell us more about the author's Protestant allied and northern biases than about divine manipulation, end quote. In other words, right, he's, he's choosing situations that he sees are good things, right? He has a Protestant. He wants to see the Spanish Armada fail, so, so he's seeing divine intervention there. He supports the Allies, so he wants to see a, mir a miracle as something that helps the Allies, right? And same thing with the, the, the American Civil War. The North uh, prevailed in these victories, and so he's inclined to see divine intervention there. It's a bit snarky, but that's what Numbers meant by it. Now, this was no internecine squabble between academics. Shankel's views neatly aligned with Ellen White's, of course, who had a very similar view of history as Shankel did. I mean, that's read the great controversy. Ellen White had seen God's hand at work in the Civil War. She had lived through it. She had cited God's hand at work in those very battles 
uh, that, that Schenkel was citing here. A.T. Jones had suggested God's hand at work in the sinking of the Armada. So Schenkel wasn't introducing any new arguments here. I think he was, I don't know about the miracle of the Marne, but at least with the other two examples he gave, there was a tradition of Avenus interpretation here that he was that he was relying on. The implications of Ron Numbers' defense of secular history is that Avenus shouldn't treat books like The Great Controversy as history books. That's not to say Numbers wanted to see Ellen White's writings diminished, only that she took her place as more theology than history in the church. Profit or not, if historians with PhDs had to filter all of their ideas through a Victorian grade school dropout, then what was the point of studying anything? Or maybe to put it a different way, if Ellen White's knowledge of a subject was final, then how could history, let alone medical science or anything else, progress beyond her? Are we sociologists and archaeologists and historians, or are we all just different flavors of theologians? And you can study all you want so long as you come to the conclusions that she came to. Naturally, not everyone agreed with Numbers' take. One reader responded, quote, Some modern theologians say God is dead. It appears that Ronald L. Numbers thinks that the devil is dead too, end quote. In other words, I guess Numbers has become a materialist and no longer believes in spiritual things. Now, that wasn't true, but it was a sign of how people were going to respond to arguments like this in times to come. A founder of the Association of Avenus Forums, which publishes Spectrum, took a different approach than Numbers, but in the same direction. In a 1970 article that he co-wrote with Harold Weiss, the authors defended the study of Ellen White. Branson and Weiss's approach was to say, look, people on all sides quote Ellen White. I'm just pick an issue, okay? You're going to have people who are gung-ho about her getting involved in the civil rights movement. You're going to have people using her to, to not get involved with the civil rights movement. These are my examples, not his, but this is, this is what he's essentially saying. Every side of every issue uses Ellen White in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so, if our scholars can study Ellen White using modern techniques, then we can discover the real Ellen White. That's what he was after. Then the authors insisted that the status quo cannot remain the same. Quote, The result of having so many Ellen Whites is that the Adventist Church may soon have no Ellen White at all. Conceivably, all that may be left will be a few members shouting at each other in her name. The great majority, having already despaired of understanding her, will only wonder what all the commotion is about. End quote. Branson and Weiss believed the study of Ellen White was an urgent task for the church, and one born out of love for Ellen White, not, not out of a desire to, to dissect her and see what she was made of. They affirmed Ellen White. They were just confused. They were just frustrated because, like I said, Every side in the church seemed to be using Ellen White. So who is the real Ellen White? Or as he put it, there's, there's multiple Ellen Whites in the church. Which one is the real one? Branson and Weiss argued that there were two ways Ellen White had been studied up until the 1970s. The first was to compile quotations on different subjects, which many members did. Now, this is going to be hard to imagine for like most younger listeners, but it's actually only been really easy to get a hold of Ellen White's writings in the past 10 or 15 years. Sure, her major books have been accessible everywhere, but but what if you're a pastor wanting to use her writings as a kind of commentary in the Book of Romans? How would you find all the times she quotes, let's say, Romans 3.25 to find out what she has to say about it? 
How would you, let's say you wanted to find out about depression or economics or Martin Luther. Martin Luther might be a little bit easier. But to find all the times she mentions him, not just in great controversy or whatnot. Now, an index to her writings was published in the early 1960s. Her comments on Daniel and Revelation were published in 1980. But your own research had to be mediated by these aids. The vast, vast majority of Avenus didn't have access to all her available writings, let alone her unpublished writings, especially before these aids became available. Enterprising members could read an LOI article in the review. Maybe they heard a nice quote from LOI in a sermon, so they would write it down. And maybe they took some of those quotes later, they organized them by topic, and so they formed their own index of LOI's writings. Now, Branson and Weiss's problem with this approach is that these quotes often had no context because while you might write a nice quote down, a line or two or three, you're probably not writing down the preceding, let's say, four paragraphs or the following four paragraphs to each quote that you are collecting. So you often don't have the context that her statements come in. Then there was the second approach Branson and Weiss noted that people had done in studying Ella White. That of looking for the places where Ellen White said, I was shown, and treating those statements as authoritative, because I was shown might indicate some vision or some revelation from God. So those are the most important statements. While Branson and Weiss saw some value in both methods, they concluded, quote, the church has not sufficiently perceived the full significance of Ellen White's message using these means. New methods are needed, end quote. Branson and Weiss outlined what questions about Ellen White needed to be answered. First, someone needed to study Ellen White's relationship to other authors. Quote, we know that she borrowed terms, phrases, and historical accounts from others. To find the real Ellen White, we must undertake the vast but absolutely necessary task of learning exactly what kind of use she made of the work of these other writers. End quote. Second, they recommended... Uh, that we need a better understanding of Ellen White's world. How can we make sense of what she wrote without understanding what was going on in her world when she wrote it? Third, there needed to be a study of the development of Ellen White's own ideas over the course of her lifetime. How did she mature in her understanding of certain topics? And what might it mean that Avenus liked to quote her early writings rather than her more mature expressions of thought in her later writings? Branson and Weiss recognized that following this research path wouldn't make Ellen White into a hip 1970s Adventist. That wasn't the goal. But they argued, quote, she would be a more believable person. She would be seen as God's human spokesman, perhaps less magical and less awesome, but also less obscure and less ignored, and therefore actually more influential than she is now, end quote. Now, as this call was going out, it was already being answered because that little bit about wanting to study how she borrowed terms or phrases and historical accounts for others, yeah, they didn't just pull that out of thin air. They were referencing something that had already started. So let me tell you about that. Two young Adventist historians at Andrews University took up offices across the hall from each other in the 1960s. One was William Peterson, who specialized in Victorian literature. The other, Donald McAdams, focused on British religious history. Now, one day, their conversation in Nethery Hall turned to problems with Ellen White's book, The Great Controversy. Some of the historians Ellen White had relied upon, well, they'd been debunked. 
So Peterson decided to study the chapter on the French Revolution to better understand Ellen White's relationship to her sources. Now, many Adventists don't realize that the issue of Ellen White and plagiarism wasn't new. Dudley M. Canwright had published such a criticism of Ellen White back in 1887. The issue would come up from time to time, and Francis David Nichol dedicated three whole chapters to it in his book, Ellen White and Her Critics. As Peterson put it, quote, Nichol seems to me to be beating a dead horse with his usual charming vigor, end quote. The plagiarism charge didn't bother Peterson. He had, what were to him, more interesting questions to ask about Ellen White and her sources. So, what question interested Peterson more than plagiarism? After listing some of the historians Ellen White said she relied upon, Peterson wrote, quote, The question I wish to raise is this. Do these historians have any attitude or bias in common which might explain why Ellen White was attracted to them? End quote. In other words, Peterson was less concerned with Ellen White's borrowing from these sources and more interested in why she chose the sources that she did. As he put it, plagiarism concerned her verbal indebtedness to her sources, but Peterson wanted to know how much she was intellectually indebted to her sources. That, to him, was the deeper issue, and one that was potentially more damaging to her reputation than the copying of a phrase or a sentence from someone else. Why would that be more damaging? Why would that be a, a, a potentially more difficult problem? Because he wanted to see, in writing about the French Revolution, how many of these thoughts were her own, and how many of them were gleaned from these historians? Because if these thoughts were, let's say, largely, mostly taken from these historians, then that means, well, oh, I should say this. What does that mean then for the way in which we view the inspiration of Ellen White? Okay, so Peterson had to study Ellen White's sources. What sort of sources did she use? What, what way did they lean? What were their biases? How much did she rely upon them for her ideas? How much did she take from them? Based on his study of Ellen White's sources in that chapter, Peterson found that Quote, all of these historians belonging to an earlier romantic historical school whose work had largely been discredited by the time Mrs. White was revising the Great Controversy in 1885, the fact is that she appears not to have been familiar with any of the important work that had been done on the Revolution in the latter half of the century and that she relied instead on older historical treatments that were strong on moral fervor and weak on factual evidence, end quote. Peterson found that every source Ellen White used in that chapter was both strongly anti-Catholic and anti-democratic. <laughs> this is why you, you aren't going to find anything about Protestants persecuting Catholics in the Great Controversy, despite that it happened pretty regularly in the early modern period. But the larger problem for Peterson is that not a single historical detail Ellen White offered was original. Quote, even her moral perspective is shared by the historians she consulted, end quote. Even worse, Peterson found that Ellen White sometimes used these sources carelessly. A rather well-known example of this is the way she treats the St. Bartholomew Massacre. She says that the attack was signaled by the tolling of, quote-unquote, the Great Palace Bell. She got that detail from a historian named Wiley, but Wiley clarified that it was actually a church bell that was rung, not a palace bell. Well, neither Ellen White nor her secretaries had apparently read the passage closely enough. 
Peterson found a number of such errors throughout the chapter. She claimed that millions died in the revolution. This was a number that was adjusted in the 1911 version to just say multitudes. She said that thousands of Protestants fled persecution, even though her source said between 400 and 500. Ellen White labels one person as an apostate priest, but her source identifies this person as a comedian. I can see the confusion there. In another case, she mentions that the Catholic bishop declared religion to be entirely man-made. What she leaves out is that the bishop was forced to do this under duress and that he only did it with tears in his eyes. Does this mean that William Peterson no longer believed that Ellen White was a prophet? No, but it did lead him to realize that the church's model of inspiration didn't quite fit the evidence that he had found. Now, more study was needed. As Peterson put it, quote, It is not an exaggeration to say that, in a scholarly sense, we know next to nothing about her books. More than 50 years have passed since her death. Surely it is time for us to recognize that the author of the books we have all read from childhood was a very human, godly woman who lived in a particular age and interpreted history with a particular set of assumptions, end quote. When the archaeologist Siegfried Horn first heard Peterson present his findings to the seminary faculty, he wrote in his journal, quote, the trouble is that our leaders have put Ellen White on such a high pedestal as authority on history, chronology, science, diet, health, social life, and what have you, that they would wreck the church if they would dare to admit that she was wrong in any of these disciplines. So they go on muddling until a catastrophe occurs, hoping that the good Lord will come soon to solve their problems, which for them are unsolvable. A real revolution could come one of these days." End quote. This was the first critical study of Ellen White, and naturally it didn't please everyone. Arthur White, Ellen White's grandson, got a hold of Peterson's article and forwarded it to the White Estate board members. A year and a half later, the White Estate's response, not just to Peterson, but to Branson and Weiss and others in that, in that particular issue of Spectrum, appeared. The author of that response was William Paul Bradley, who was chair of the White Estate board. Bradley called Branson and Weiss's position unreasonable. Ellen White was perfectly able to be understood. There was no need to study her. Sure, some words here and there might be dated, but, you know, grab a dictionary, grab an old dictionary, you'll figure it out. Turning to Peterson, Bradley put things in perspective. Ellen White's history-based chapters in The Great Controversy make up three-quarters of one percent of her total writings. And no, I did not fact-check that claim. So let's not get too worked up about what a few mistakes in some of these chapters might mean for Ellen White as a whole. Bradley's response was largely dismissive, if you couldn't tell. He didn't get why these young scholars were so urgent about the need to study Ellen White. Anybody who picks up Ellen White's books can read it. It's super easy to understand. What's the problem here? What do you mean that we, we, haven't, we don't really understand Ellen White 50 years after her death? He thought Peterson's study was entirely a matter of opinion. All right, she chose this source. You disagree with this source. That's just your opinion, man. If Ellen White was a prophet, then what does it matter if she relied upon some unreliable historians? The only question that matters at the end was, well, whether the spiritual truths she was trying to communicate were true or not. Who cares whether it happened on this day or this other day? John W. Wood also picked up his pen to respond to Peterson, blasting the professor and setting out to defend Ellen White's sources. Now, Wood defended Ellen White and how she read the Ringing of the Bell issue in Wiley. Wood quarreled with a number of Peterson's claims, but he didn't quite agree with Bradley that scholars had no reason to study Ellen White. Wood believed that Ellen White would stand vindicated under any scholarly scrutiny. In fact, he welcomed it. 
Peterson replied to Wood in the same issue of Spectrum and called him patronizing, but I'm not going to get into the back and forth between them. The whole affair was too much for Peterson, who left Andrews months after his original article appeared, and he moved to the University of Maryland. Don McAdams, his colleague from across the hall, watched all of this unfold with interest. He had done his own study of Ellen White's chapter on the English Reformation and came to similar conclusions that Peterson did. McAdams believed that the Great Controversy was an inspired work, but he no longer trusted it as a reliable narrator of history. Unlike Peterson, he didn't share his conclusions publicly, but what he noted in his journal was similar to what Siegfried Horn and others were thinking. Quote, It all rests on Ellen White, and it is not surprising that she is so much today the object of attention on the part of Adventist thinkers. I am tired of being patient. End quote. Patient he would have to be. The General Conference president viewed this new group of Avenus intellectuals with deep suspicion. Peterson left Andrews in part because his colleagues were afraid to be seen with him. A 1971 article in Christianity Today pointed out that, quote, any serious study of Mrs. White's theological writings that is more than a literal interpretation is considered by the rank and file of Adventists to be a hostile attack by liberal elements, end quote. Naturally, thinkers discussed whatever they wanted to discuss, but as Christianity Today put it, quote, without comfort and with a sense of guilt, end quote. This was not the time to stick your neck out because, well, Pearson was looking for heads of the role. McAdams persevered quietly. He went on to study the chapter on the Great Controversy about John Huss and produced a 105-page study by the end of 1971. He sent eight copies of the document to fellow scholars for feedback. At the American Historical Association, McAdams met with William Peterson and Ron Numbers to discuss his work. More than a year later, McAdams finally sent his manuscript to a wider circle, leaders at Andrews, the Lake Union, and the White Estate, and as well as the Review and Herald. McAdams hardly sent it out with much enthusiasm or hope for success. As he wrote in his journal, quote, I have selected my jury well. If the church cannot take this, given in the private way, then it is hardly worth my dedication, end quote. In other words, McAdams was intentionally trying to follow a different path than Peterson. He wasn't going to publish and try to start a big public conversation about it. He was trying to first circle it to a small group of scholars for feedback, then he sent it to some responsible church leaders, but he did all of this privately. Now, the president of Andrews, Richard Hamill, appreciated the paper. So did church historian Mervyn Maxwell. Arthur White decided to form a committee to study the paper because, you know, committees is the... It's what we do. Arthur, as I said, who's Ellen White's grandson, apologized to McAdams that he hadn't made more of Ellen White's material available to him. Arthur wrote, quote, let me tell you, Don, that we have recognized that there are problems. We have always recognized this, end quote. Nevertheless, Arthur White largely shrugged off McAdams's conclusions. Plagiarism wasn't a big deal. Neither was her reliance on faulty historians. Now, Ron Graybill helped McAdams soften some of his claims. He was very concerned about the tone of his paper. He didn't want to come off as um, kind of snarky and all of that. But Graybill also helped McAdams to discover an original draft of this chapter on Jan Hus in Ellen White's own handwriting. This was a huge help for McAdams' research. He could now see how Ellen White originally outlined the chapter, and as he expected, it was full of long long quotes from these other historians, and was, at times, well, to paraphrase him, almost incoherent. 
Ellen White's editors had no easy task shaping the material into a book chapter. McAdams' approach ensured that he didn't feel the kind of pressure that Peterson did, but he realized that it didn't win him any friends either. The GC president, Robert H. Pearson, tried to block McAdams from becoming president of Southwestern Adventist University. Because McAdams had used this Huss manuscript, he couldn't publish this research without Arthur White's approval. Though McAdams' conclusions became an open secret before too long, he was only able to publish it in 2022. You heard me. 2022. About 50 years later. Talking about Don McAdams' paper is an episode in and of itself, and luckily I've already done that. And that episode is over at the Adventist History Extra podcast. The episode's called Ellen White Was Not a Historian. And if you want to get even more great Adventist History content, you can go get access to Adventist History Extra by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast or by signing up for Adventist History Extra on our website, which you can get at AdventistHistoryPodcast.org. Our friends Greg Howell and Michael Campbell, by the way, also chatted with Don McAdams. I shouldn't say also chatted. I didn't chat with Don McAdams. I just talked about his book. Michael and Greg chatted with Don McAdams in their episode, Adventism is Bigger Than Ellen White. So you can go take a look at Adventist Pilgrimage podcast and look for that episode as well. So this episode might get you thinking about how this research affected the scholars' views of Ellen White. I've tried to address that in a couple of places, but let me add this. Ben MacArthur summarized McAdams' view by saying that Ellen White's inspiration, quote, lies not in the history she summarizes, but in the religious meaning she imparts to it, end quote. But that still leaves questions, doesn't it? Not questions for McAdams necessarily, but questions for us. What does this mean for your view of Ellen White if she borrowed not just words, but ideas, tone, facts, judgments from the historians who, well, could be faulty? Is that something that you can just shrug off, or does it bother you? These questions which these men have raised, for the most part, have settled down. People are not as surprised <laughs> as they were in the early 1970s to learn these things. It's, it's become more or less accepted by, I would say, a good number of Adventists that she borrowed from these other authors. But the surprise has worn off, and many have just come to accept that Ellen White made some mistakes in her writings, and, and that she may be wrong about dates and places and whatnot in her historical portions of her uh, of the Great Controversy. Different groups of Adventists have discussed it or ignored it as they see fit. But Adventists as a whole have never assembled to talk about what it means for our view of inspiration, at least not that I'm aware of. We've had to figure it out for ourselves, and it's a conversation worth having. It's a topic worth studying, even if you aren't a historian. And it just gets down to, if you believe Ellen White was inspired, what does that inspiration look like? What does it mean that she was inspired? It's, it's a word that gets thrown around an awful lot. There's been a number of books that have been written about it, but what does it mean that Ellen White is inspired? What are the contours of that word? Is Does that mean that every word she wrote came from God? Does that mean that uh, is is um, MacArthur summarizes McAdams. That's fun to say, MacArthur McAdams. As MacArthur summarizes McAdams, is 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 the point the the religious meaning that she imparts to the history that she's describing, the things that she's writing. Is that is that what's inspired? Uh, but that, that's that's a conversation that needs to be had, and it needs to be had in every generation. 
as Peterson started a new life in Maryland and McAdams's manuscript languished in purgatory, Ron Numbers was preparing his own study on Ellen White. This one would be published. Numbers' book was, Ben MacArthur would later say, quote, the most significant book ever written regarding Adventism, end quote. Numbers wouldn't limit his study to a particular chapter in the Great Controversy, and he wouldn't be afraid to publish it, as I said. Like Peterson, he would have to leave his job over the publishing of this book. That's right, my friends. In our next episode, we are going to talk about Ron Numbers' book, Prophetess of Health. That'll be our next subject. But for now, thank you so much for listening. We're going to talk again soon. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>